Well, if you take your Bibles with me, we want to turn back to Haggai. Haggai chapter 2 is where we want to be this evening. The banquet sure was delightful, wasn't it? Uh, It's been a joy to get to know um, various of you folks. It's been uh, uh, such a delight. You know, it's always refreshing, isn't it, to come and to meet some new people um, and to uh, see and hear uh, their testimony, uh, their uh, walk in life, uh, who they are, what God is doing in their life, and to recognize the unity that we have uh, within Jesus Christ. Um, And that is uh, such a joy. Uh, We want to uh, focus our attention uh, this evening on uh, the first nine verses of chapter 2. I entitled it, The Person of Hope. Uh, And I want to jump right into it just so that we make our way um, all the way through all of these verses. Um, But I want to set the stage uh, because I don't want us to get lost. You know, the people had listened to the voice of God uh, given through the prophet Haggai, and they had begun work on the temple. And so chapter 2 takes place 27 days after work began anew on the temple. So in between kind of that beginning in chapter 1 where they started to rebuild the temple to chapter 2, it's only 27 days, uh, you know, less than a month. And things were not shaping up like one might have imagined and hoped. Uh, We should note a couple of connecting dots Um, in the history of Israel that might be easy to miss, and I'm going to just briefly run through these. But in chapter 2, we are in the seventh month. And this is significant because that was the month that Solomon dedicated the temple built to God. Uh, So think about that, right? Here are the people working on rebuilding the temple, and it will not get done in the seventh month. It's not going to happen. And you say, well, did they really remember Uh, Did they really remember that Solomon finished it in the seventh month? Wasn't that like 400 years earlier? And it's like, yeah, it was. Um, But this is a people that rehearsed these things. Um, And so we remember it because we have it recorded in Scripture. They would have remembered it. They had it recorded in Scripture. Um, And so that, it couldn't be helped. But as they built the new temple, it looks pretty meager and disappointing compared to Solomon's temple. Uh, His temple was awesome, and their temple was basic, (laughs) and it wasn't even going to be done. And it's like, oh, that's tough. Also, the 21st day of the seventh month is the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And you say, remind me, Steve, what's the Feast of Tabernacles? And that was the feast where people would, would build tabernacles, right, booths. Um, outside of their homes, all around the Temple Mount. Wouldn't it have been awesome to see that take place? That would have been so cool um, to see them doing that. But they would build um, these, these uh, little homes that they could stay in, right? And the idea was um, that it was to remember that God had brought them out of Egypt into a strange land. They had lived in tents, and these functional but crude tabernacles Um, that's what they had lived in until God had brought them into the land. And so during the Feast of Tabernacles, they would set that up. Wouldn't that be a fun tradition with your family? Uh, We're going to set up a a tabernacle, um, and we're going to stay outside on the Temple Mount uh, in our tabernacle, worshiping God. How cool would that have been, right? But that's, that's kind of, that's part of what was happening. So we should catch the mood. God is working in their midst, 
but it's mostly been still in the past. <laughs> and so all these things would remind them of a glorious past and a, eh, we're really trying hard here, if you, you know, present. And maybe things will get better in the future, right? Um, but that's kind of where uh, they were at. Uh, and they were in the land, they were in the land, and there was kind of restarting. And it wasn't because God had given them great deliverance um, over a different people that they were back in the land. Rather, it was because a conquering king had let them return to that which was previously theirs. <laughs> and so it's just like it's hanging on them, right? You can just feel the weight of it. Um, they, they were not masters of their own destiny. They were there at the whim and the will of a foreign and a pagan king. And they would say, okay, but God is in control of that king, and we would 100% agree. Uh, but yet they would feel that, right? There's a lot of work uh, to be done. And the people were beginning to realize that they could not match the greatness of the past, nor even achieve much uh, that they were hoping to achieve in the present. And what's interesting is that God does not shy away from this truth. In fact, he draws attention to it. Um, so I, I didn't read the entire passage, and I really probably should have. Um, so let's just read this passage, and then we'll start to piece it apart. Uh, verse number one of Haggai chapter two. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And so you, as we were reading that, um, you, you heard uh, verse number three, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? You know, one of, one of the beautiful things about our God is that he never lies to us. And he just lays it out here. And he says, hey, this is not as cool as it used to be, is it? <laughs> and, and it was very clear to them. And it was like, yeah, this is not as good as it was. You know, Solomon's temple was destroyed in 586 B.C., 66 years uh, before the date in which Haggai was speaking. And those who could remember would have been people in their 70s and their 80s. And for almost 70 years, they had been living in the land of Israel with no temple, they had been living in Babylon, separated from the land. You know, have you ever gone back as an adult uh, to something that you remember from your childhood? Have you ever done that, right? And you go back and you go, you look around and you're like, man, I remember this being bigger. <laughs> I 
Uh, this used to be a, a bigger thing. And you go back and it was like, man, this was, used to be glorious. What happened now, right? Maybe if you watch one of those shows, you remember when you were smaller and you're like, man, this is the best show ever. ever. And then you like show it to your kids and they look at you and you look at them and you're like, ah, it seemed way better. <laughs> it was like way better. I don't know what happened. <laughs> um, but it's just, that's how it works for us, right? But in this case... What they were remembering was better. It was way better. And so you can imagine, you take how we normally feel, and then you add the fact that it really was better, and they're going to feel pretty bad. And so you have these people that are feeling that way. And I I don't want to belabor this point. Um, Let me get through that. Uh, But yeah, this is is Ezra chapter 3. This same thing happened when they started rebuilding the uh, the temple at first. Uh, Verse number 10, I don't have up there, uh, but verse 10, it says, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was made. This is Ezra. This is like two decades before this, but then look at verse 12. It says, But many of the priests and Levites and head of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. Man, doesn't that just break your heart? And they just laid the foundation. And you have people excited and shouting, and then you have other people that are just brokenhearted and weeping. Because there's like, this is not going to be the same. This won't compare with Solomon's temple. So, the people were discouraged. How is God going to encourage them? How is he going to motivate them? And you know, God does not attempt to kind of restructure any narrative. Um, He does not tell them that their perspective is wrong, only that it's incomplete. And he turns their eyes not to the circumstances, but rather to a person. And I would just say, as we contemplate this passage this evening, um, let me try to draw some application in your own hearts that as we work through it, that you begin to think about this on a practical level. Have you ever been discouraged about something in your life and you say, I don't know where exactly, I don't know exactly where to turn. I know I'm supposed to turn to the Lord but I don't know exactly where to turn. Perhaps this is a job, you know, which you thought this is what God desired for you and your family and how he was going to use you, and then suddenly you lose it or it changes in a significant way. Perhaps this is a marriage. Things started great, but now they are not. Perhaps this is your children. You say, man, I tried to raise raise them rightly. I did all the right things. But you're faced right now with such discouragement and hopelessness that you're at a loss. What are you supposed to do? Perhaps this is a ministry. You're trying to use your life for the Lord, but the ministry in which you're investing is not just floundering, it's failing. Or maybe through no fault of your own or no way that you could stop it, it was taken from you. Uh, and it's just this discouragement that's there. Perhaps it's a, this is the church. The church was looking so promising. Until you really got to know some of the people, amen? And some of the broken structures. And some of the power plays and the politics. The ugliness. And you just don't know if it's possible to save it. What do you do 
when you're faced with that kind of discouragement and depression. You know, when we, when we grow discouraged, we must turn our eyes to the person of God. And what, what should we look for when we are discouraged? Well, in this passage, I just want to uh, give us from Haggai, um, he gives the people three priorities they ought to embrace when they're discouraged. And so we want to look at these three priorities. Here they are. Um, you see them there in your notes. Prioritize God's pursuit, his presence, um, and um, his plan. Uh, so what do we mean by this? Prioritize God's pursuit. Um, here's the question we ought to be asking. Am I working for God? These are all personal things. We're in the midst of discouragement. Um, and so to just do an assessment and ask myself the question, am I working for God? If I can answer that in the definitive, it provides hope. You know, working in the wrong direction is foolish and it's futile. But if I am pursuing that which God is pursuing, then I can be confident that my efforts are not wasted. And friends, this is crucial. I might have to give up my dream, but if I am only seeking what God is seeking, then my dream can be reshaped into his dream. And there is tremendous hope there. Because I can abandon my discouragement because all I'm doing is following the lead of God. Look at verse number 4, Haggai 2.4. says, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. You know, God's not talking just to the leaders. It's everybody, right? Declares the Lord, work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant I made with you when I came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. It's such a wonderful thing. Our hope comes from his strength. God through Haggai says, be strong to three people or groups of people. To Zerubbabel, he's the political leader. To Joshua, he's the religious leader. And then to all the people of the land. And he says, be strong. This reminds us of, of God's command. To who? When he entered the land. Who was it? What does this remind you of? Joshua, right? Doesn't it remind you of Joshua? And this is the same message, be strong and courageous. So this call to strength, just let's remember, this is not a call to inner fortitude. It's a call to trust. God is not telling them, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's such a great phrase. Just think about that for a moment. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. God is... God is not telling them they have the strength to do this themselves. Rather, he is saying, if you are following what I am doing, then I will do it. Ah, that is strength, right? He is reminding them that they are strong because he is with them. It is his strength. They can be strong because God is strong. Hope comes from his strength, but also his productivity. This doesn't mean that we do nothing that's the path of further discouragement. Rather, it's doing that which God is leading us to do. It's saying, Lord, I see your goals, what you're after, and I want to embrace it. The word translated work here uh, could be translated build. And I think it's probably a better, uh, better translation that way because it would be entirely contextual as well. They were supposed to build because that, which was, that is what God was calling them to do. Uh, and so it says work, but he's literally saying build. Go out and build. Do the thing that I'm calling you to do. 
And hope builds and discouragement decreases when we simply obey and do that which God calls us to do. You know, too many times we take on more than we need to take on, but then sometimes we refuse to just follow in obedience. It's enough to obey God, and in the midst of great discouragement, that is all that we can do sometimes, right? You say, I can just do what God calls me to do. I can do that. I can just obey. We can surrender to God and simply obey him. You know, this morning we heard a fantastic uh, challenge to be involved in witnessing. Wasn't that a blessing? Uh, you know, it's super encouraging to me uh, to hear Tim just share story after story of how God, by his grace, and to him belongs all the glory, and we get that, we realize that, but it was still was in, incredibly encouraging to just go, man, life after life, and I hope you were just thrilled by that, because it's like, if God's involved, he can do it. <laughs> and it's like, let's just, let's get involved with what God is involved in. I had a gal that approached me years ago now, and uh, she had just started attending our church. She said, Pastor, can I meet with you? Absolutely. We sat down, and she said, um, I'm going to divorce my husband. He says, I'm coming to you just because, I don't know, I feel like I should give it one more try, but I really don't think it's going to work, and I'm really not even sure I want to try. And I said, man, I am super inspired to help you. <laughs> That's, this is going to be a fantastic conversation. Uh, and as we talked, and, and she said, no, I really think God wants me to try. And, and I said, well, let's, let's meet. Let's get together, the three of us. She says, I don't even think he'll, I don't think he'll do it. And I said, well, I, have you asked him? Well, no, I haven't asked him. You know, well, let's, let's try. And so he, he did. And we began meeting, and we began meeting weekly. And, and sure, it was work. But they were actually interested in changing. And so as we worked through Scripture... They actually listened. It was such a joy. And they put it into their lives. And maybe, maybe it was three years ago, uh, they celebrated a recommitment ceremony. Uh, they are enjoying time together, uh, and they genuinely love each other. And it's like, oh, that's so awesome. What a blessing. But it all goes back to this concept of just, hey, when we're discouraged and we're defeated, what do you do? You say, okay, I'm going to just seek to do things God's way. I'm going to trust in him, and I'm going I'm to work at it. I'm going to put the time in. So when we are discouraged, we need to prioritize God's pursuit. Secondly, we need to prioritize God's presence. Um, if, if we were um, considering uh, the first question, uh, am I working for God? Um, if we are able uh, to answer that question affirmatively, did I put it in there? I, I actually messed the word up. The second question should be, am I walking with God? So I didn't change my working to walking. Um, so don't write down, am I working for God? Under point number two, prioritizing God's presence, the question is, am I, walk am I walking with God? Uh, and we see this again in verse number four and five. Be strong, be strong, be strong, work, right? And then five, he says, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst, fear not. You know, God's presence confirms his promises. God reminds them of the covenant that he made, the promise that he made with them. God hadn't forgotten it, nor was he failing to keep it. In fact, the very fact that they were back in the land is a confirmation of both his presence and his promise. 
It was not what they had imagined or deeply desired, but God was still faithful to his promises. In truth, they ought to have been very encouraged by this. Because consider the reality. The people of Israel had stacked up year upon year upon year upon year of sin against a holy God. What do you think? Is it too much to say that the people of Israel were guilty of every known sin? (laughs) I have no idea if that's actually true. But I have to imagine that it probably, it probably was a true statement. They had been unfaithful to God, distrustful of him, disloyal, negligent of his care and love, and betrayed him over and over again. Um, The concept of the depth of the sin of Israel. You remember Jeremiah? I was chatting with Skylar, I think, about this um, uh, earlier. But you remember Jeremiah? Uh, In Jeremiah, Jeremiah said, my people are guilty of two sins, right? Abandoning. Uh, the living water, the fountain of living water, uh, and satisfying themselves or seeking to satisfy themselves with a broken cistern that carries no water. Uh, And it's like that's exactly what Israel was guilty of. You know, when we think about this in our lives, 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you believe that? You know, it's very easy, I think, for us to get overwhelmed by our own sin. But that's where we have to turn our eyes towards Jesus himself and to recognize uh, that his promises are for us. That is a tremendous hope that ought to inspire us. You know, when, when they were discouraged, they need to remind themselves of the promises of God. When we're discouraged, we need to remind ourselves of the promise of God made to us uh, through Jesus. God's presence confirms his promises, and God's presence combats our fear. Um, As he says there again uh, in uh, verse number five, he says, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Fear not. This is powerful. You know, we're driven by so much fear, aren't we? And yet that fear does not have to motivate us because of the presence of the living God. When we, are al- when we are not alone, we are not afraid. I remember Psalm 23. Uh, as we think about that powerful passage, uh, as we think about walking through the valley of the shadow of death, have you ever thought about what that, what that looked like? What does a valley in the Judean desert look like? I know what a valley in Minnesota looks like. What does a valley in Iowa look like? Do they have valleys in Iowa? Is that such a thing? Are there valleys in Iowa? Maybe southern Iowa, right? Southern Iowa has valleys. It'll look a little bit like Minnesota. Uh, what, do you, what do you think about when you think of a valley? You're reading Psalm 23, and you think of the valley of the shadow of death. What do you think of, right? Uh, maybe you think of like, um, you know, a nice little stream at the bottom <laughs> and a tree that's there. That's, that's what happens in valleys, right? All the water comes in. Um, but think of the Judean desert. Um, Because that's what he's writing from, right? Psalm 23, he's talking about the desert. What does a valley in the desert look like? Um, This is a valley in the desert. You can see the building that's there on the side. But look at this. This is all dark. Isn't that interesting, right? All of the darkness that's there um, in the valley. Yea, though I walk through the, what is it? What's the word? Valley of the shadow 
of death. Um, so if you're in the desert, um, where are all of the little creatures going to go? Into the shadow. And if you're walking through the shadow, you have to be careful where you walk. Uh, moreover, um, if you're in the desert and you know that somebody's going to make their way through and there is a valley with deep shadows, where do you think, you know, uh, somebody might hide, right? If they're looking to actually rob you or assault you. Uh, and so here's Jesus, communi Jesus, here's God communicating to us. Psalm 23, he's communicating to us that he will walk with us. I will fear no evil because what? You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is not ethereal. <laughs> this is literal. God is saying, I will be there with you. And dear friends, that has not changed. That he's talking about that to the Old Testament people, he's talking about that to us as well. God is there with us. Uh, and so when we are discouraged, we need to prioritize God's pursuit, his presence, but also his plan. Um, if we're able to answer those first two questions affirmatively, am I working for God? Say, yes, I'm working for God. And we can affirmatively answer the next question, am I walking with God? And you say, yes, I am walking with God. Okay, I'm doing what God is calling me to do, and I am, I am walking with him. Think of the hope that that builds. But what we are doing um, is that which God has called us to do, and we're doing it with him. How awesome is that? And things may not look right? Uh, but it's like, okay, but I'm, I'm doing what God wants me to do. And I'm doing it with them. And then we ought to ask the question, am I waiting upon God? Uh, because it's so easy for us to get ahead of ourselves, isn't it? And so verse number six, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while. Oh, it's so good to hear that. It's so painful and hard, but it's so good because here he's talking to these people uh, that he loved and that he cares for. And he said, rebuild the temple and they're rebuilding it. And now they're going, but it's not really that great. It's not everything that we wanted and we're discouraged. And God says, ah, just a little while. And what does he say he's going to do? I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations. So the treasure of all nations come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. Do I need to point out how many times he says the Lord of hosts? And what is he saying? The Lord of all armies, the Lord of hosts. And he's pointing towards his power and his authority. And he says, in this place, uh, in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. You know, God's plan is prepared. God is not making things up as he goes along. Isn't that a blessing? He's not attempting to adjust to factors or circumstances outside of himself. It's easy for us to imagine that such is the case by default. Because after all, as much as we try not to do that, that's often how we live. If we were able to forecast a few decisions down the road, we feel accomplished and wise. But consider that from God's perspective. And we are, we are so short-sighted. This is a being who stands outside of time and he looks in upon time. He sees the beginning and the end. 
everything. This is why his promises are so certain. <laughs> he sees it from a different angle. It, it's all there. He's not, he's not responding to anything. You know, the remnant in Haggai were looking at what they thought should occur, and they're discouraged because it was not living up to what they imagined. They wanted a glorious temple. It wasn't looking like it was going to happen, but that was exactly the point. It was looking that way because that was God's plan. And friends, you and I need to take comfort by that. And you say, man, Steve, that's just a position of faith. And I would say, exactly. It is faith. It is taking God at his word. And his word says, this is how I operate. Why do we have Haggai? So that we can see it. So that we can see it in our lives. And you say, okay, but I was hoping for this. And God says, I'm going to do it this way. And we're like, oh, it's going to take too long. <laughs> and God says, trust me. Wait for me. And so we get caught up with our plan. We have a hard time letting our dreams go and instead embracing God's dream. But who do you think dreams better? There's no question, right? We want God to share with us his plan, but dear friend, he has. Not in direct detail, but in a broad manner. We do know what God's doing. And we get a chance to be a part of it. He does have a plan. What did God want the remnant to do in Haggai's day? Build the temple. Regardless of how they thought it was going. And so I would say, what does God want you to do in this day? Make disciples. Isn't that God's plan for you? Until we embrace it. God's plan is prepared. God's plan is peerless. It is without peer. Um, as he continues on in this passage... Um, he, he lays out all of these uh, wonderful promises that are there. Um, and before I get to that picture, uh, let me just say that it is, his plan is perfect. It is without peer. Um, it is beyond anything that we could dream up, much less accomplish. Um, I should probably point out here uh, the treasure, right? Uh, which, depending on your translation... Uh, you would uh, have a different translation. It might say it a little bit differently. But verse 7 says, I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. Um, now, what is, the, uh, what is the treasure of all nations? What is the desire of all nations? How about, let me ask that. Uh, let me ask that. What is the desire of all nations? You would answer? Uh, okay, often the desire of all nations is referred to as Jesus himself. Now, is that what I'm talking about here? Is that what I think he's talking about? I, don't, I actually don't think it is, because I think the context indicates he is literally talking um, about silver and gold. That's why he says in verse 8, the silver and the gold is mine. He is talking about actual wealth coming in, um, but it is uh, challenging that way. And I only say that um, just um, so that as you study those things out, um, you will hear at least one voice uh, speaking into that. But a couple of points here for us to ponder um, as we think about this. Um, we think about the discouragement that is there and the challenges that are there. And, and, and I think it's good for us just to, to see this lived out in people's lives because it gives us a picture, a real-life picture of what this looks like. Um, I don't know if anybody has ever heard of this guy. His name is Dave uh, uh, Rover. Uh, Dave Rover was born in, in Brownsville, Texas. He didn't stay there long, though. His dad was a pastor. Um, he, his dad was a pastor who started new churches, and so he would plant a church, and once they got on, on its feet, he would move to another church. And Dave accepted Jesus as Savior, 
at age of five, and he dreamed of becoming an evangelist. And during high school, Dave began preaching at youth camps. Um, he also grew in love with a strong Christian girl by the name of Brenda. And the strong is modifying Christian, not girl, right? Uh, and while attending Bible college in Texas, uh, Dave married Brenda, and then he was drafted into the Navy uh, to serve in uh, Vietnam. And because he was studying to be a pastor, Dave probably could have gotten excused from the draft, but he didn't even try. Uh, he, he wanted to fight for his country. And he did so well in the Navy's basic training that he was chosen to train for river patrol. Hey, great job, Dave. Way to excel. That is maybe the one time you do not want to excel. River patrol was one of the most dangerous assignments in Vietnam. It was his group's job to go out looking for communist soldiers who looked like everyone else in Vietnam, right? And so the patrol moved up and down the river in constant danger of being fired on by enemy soldiers hiding in the jungle. And each firefight left Dave thrilled to be alive, but sickened from seeing all those who died. And to make matters harder, other soldiers made fun of him because he didn't act like them. He didn't drink, he stayed faithful to his wife, and they began to mock him. One day on patrol, Dave got ready to throw a special grenade designed to burn jungle brush and to reveal hidden uh, booby traps, but the grenade was defective and it blew up in his hand. And Dave's body caught on fire. He dropped into the river, but he continued to burn. In unimaginable pain, he, cr he crawled out of the water, um, and you can just see where his heart was. He called out, God, I still believe in you. He was barely conscious as he was put into the helicopter. Third-degree burns covered 40% of his body. At one point, the medics thought he was dead. Uh, they rushed him to the nearest hospital, but he wasn't expected to live, and by some miracle, he did. Later, when he saw himself in a mirror, he wished that he hadn't. Not only was he in excruciating pain, but half his face was gone. He felt like a monster. And once Dave's condition was stable, he was brought back to a hospital in the U.S. Now his wife was allowed to see him. Can you imagine? And he was so anxious about Brenda's reaction. What if she shrank back in horror when she saw him? But he worried needlessly about that. When Brenda came into his room, she kissed him tenderly and said, Welcome home, Davey. I love you. You know, Dave was in the hospital 14 months undergoing painful treatment for his burns, 14 months. When he was released, he faced even more pain, uh, even from people's reactions. Can you imagine this? Small children cried with fear when they saw him. Every morning, Dave gets up from his bed and he untapes his eyelids because they won't close on their own. And he puts on his hairpiece and he attaches his plastic ear. Um, that was a picture of Dave in Vietnam. This is a picture of Dave. Um, he is uh, obviously, I think he actually has passed away now, uh, but he's obviously much older than that now. I think I have another picture there too. Um, you can see all of the many plastic surgeries uh, that he went through. The first time he tried to preach in church, he got up to speak. He had, not gone on, he had not undergone as many plastic surgeries, and the congregation just stared at him with shock and horror. A wave of depression and doubt washed over him. How could he fulfill his dream of being an evangelist? And he was discouraged. And Dave thought about taking his own life. 
uh, Dave felt like everything that he had done was for the Lord, and then the Lord took everything away. Uh, Dave, Dave was, you know, how hard is it to live for the Lord in the military? And Dave was doing that. And then suddenly it was everything turned upside down. And now we can imagine how God would use his life. But can you put yourself into Dave's position and think how discouraging it would be? And so you can guess the end of the story. God actually used Dave's injury um, to become the voice that was able to change and influence so many people. People who had gone through horrible things, but they looked at Dave and they said, now there's a guy who understands. And Dave would speak to them about Jesus and about hope and about faith. And people came to know the Lord over and over and over again. And now what do you think? Do you think Dave's going to look back and say, you know what? My dream was better than God's dream. There's no way. But he never would have imagined this. He never would have asked for this. It was beyond anything he could dream of. God gave it to him. It was a gift. In eternity, Dave's going to look back and have nothing but gratitude. Thanks, God, for doing this for me. Hey, I don't know where you're at in your life right now. I don't know what discouragement is there, but the words of the Lord from Haggai speak to you. That in the midst of discouragement, you say, what do I do? Prioritize God's pursuit. Prioritize his presence. Prioritize his plans. Am I working for God? Am I walking with God? Am I waiting upon God? If you can answer those questions, then dear friend, um, you will continue to move forward in life. And one day you will be able to look back and you will so clearly see God's hand. Why don't we close in a word of prayer? And then I'll turn things over. Heavenly Father, I do pray for all of us here as we just wrestle with the challenges that life brings. And Lord, we desire to use our lives for you, but we, we admit our frailty and we desire to depend on you. Help us in the midst of our discouragement to take these words that you have given to the people of Israel in Haggai's day, help, them to, help us to apply it to ourselves. Lord, help us to seek after your desires. Help us to walk with you and help us to wait upon you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.